morning. If you would please take out your copy of the scriptures and turn to Luke chapter 7. Here at First Baptist Church, we've been making our way through this gospel of Luke. This morning we come to the beginning of chapter 7, and so look along in your Bibles as I read the first 10 verses of the chapter, and this narrative is going to be our focus for this morning. Hear the word of the Lord. After he had finished all his sayings in the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum. Now a centurion had a servant who was sick and at the point of death, who was highly valued by him. When the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent to him elders of the Jews, asking him to come and heal his servant. And when they came to Jesus, they pleaded with him earnestly, saying, He is worthy to have you do this for him, for he loves our nation, and he is the one who built, our, built us our synagogue. And Jesus went with them. When he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends, saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. Therefore, I did not presume to come to you, but say the word. And let my servant be healed. For I too am a man set under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes. And to another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him. And turning to the crowd that followed him, said, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. When those who had been sent returned to the house... They found the servant well. Father, we ask that you would help us now as we turn our attention to this passage. That this would not be merely an intellectual exercise, as if it were an academic lecture. uh, But we ask that the Holy Spirit himself would speak to our hearts so that we would be convicted and changed by your word. We pray that you would increase our faith, that it might be like this centurions, that we too would have absolute confidence in the power of your word and your authority. We pray also for those in this room who do not yet believe, pray that you would, even through this passage, reveal yourself and your glory to them. We know, God, that you speak through your word, and so we ask that you would speak now, Lord, for your servants here. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. So last Sunday, you'll remember, we finished up the Sermon on the Plain from Luke chapter 6, right? the extended discourse in which Jesus explains to his disciples what it means to be a true disciple. And he started with the Beatitudes and the Woes. Blessed are you who are poor and hungry and weep and are hated, And there he paints a picture of the true disciple who, in true humility, realizes his spiritual need and looks to God alone. In contrast, woe to those who, in pride, think themselves to be rich and full and laughing and praised and reject God as a result. Then Jesus tells the crowd that true disciples, well, they ought to love their enemies. And the primary motivation for doing so 
is to be like your Father in heaven, who is himself kind to the ungrateful and evil. Be merciful, even as your Father is merciful. Then Jesus says that true disciples ought to refrain from harsh and critical and uncharitable judgments, instead treating others graciously, being inclined to forgiveness and mercy. And part of that is examining yourself. Disciples should first and foremost be concerned with their own sin and righteousness rather than just being focused on others. And then finally, last Sunday, we saw how Jesus brings it all together in the end by using two illustrations, one of fruit and one of foundations. Uh, True disciples, as good trees, must bear good fruit because each tree is known by its own fruit. And true disciples, as wise builders, must build their houses on the firm foundation of Christ, lest their buildings be destroyed in the storms and floods of life, like those of the foolish builder. And how do they show that they've built their houses on the rock? It's by submitting to Jesus' word. Basically, if you're going to call him Lord, Lord, you've got to not only hear what he says, but you've also got to do what he commands, but be doers of the word and not hearers only. So that's where we've spent the last four sermons, the Sermon on the Plain. And now jumping into today's passage, you'll notice, look at verse 1, that this story about the healing of the centurion's servant, well, it comes right after Jesus finishes preaching. Look at verse 1. After he had finished all his sayings in the hearing of the people, also known as the Sermon on the Plain, he entered Capernaum. Now, at first glance, you might just think, well, that's simply a chronological link between uh, the sermon and the story. And so, chapter 6 and 7, these things are just connected uh, by space and time. And yes, it is true, the sermon and the story are connected by space and time. But the connection goes even deeper than that. Because this centurion in this story He's going to serve us as a real-life illustration of the kind of true disciple that Jesus was just talking about in the Sermon on the Plain. That is, God, in his perfect providence, right, he orchestrates all things, and so he brings about this particular encounter with this particular man right after Jesus preaches that particular sermon because this man, through this encounter, shows himself to be an example of the true disciple that Jesus talks about in that sermon. But before we dive into the story, I think one point of clarification is going to be helpful in perhaps clearing up some potential confusion. Our story for today, the healing of the centurion servant, it is also found in Matthew chapter 8. And so if you read those two accounts side by side, right, Luke chapter 7, Matthew chapter 8, you're going to notice that there's a few small differences in detail, but it's clearly one in the same story. Where it gets a little confusing, though, is in contrasting the healing that happens in Luke 7 and Matthew 8 with a similar but different altogether healing in John chapter 4. Right? John chapter 4 is the healing of the nobleman's son. And so those two healings are similar in that they're both distance healings, and they both involve a Gentile official, and they both take place in the general region of the city of Capernaum. 
But if you compare those two stories side by side, you're also going to see some major differences. Like in our story, it's a centurion's servant who is sick. In John chapter 4, it's a nobleman's son. Uh, In our story, Jesus is in Capernaum. In John chapter 4, he's in the nearby city of Cana. And there's also clear differences in the dialogue and other details. And so healing of the centurion's servant, that's in Luke 7, that's in Matthew 8. Healing of the nobleman's son, that's in John chapter 4. Similar healing in nature, but different events. And really, it shouldn't surprise us that Jesus would perform the same kind of miracle on more than one occasion. If everything that he did were written, the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. Now let's look at our story, our text. Luke chapter 7, verse 1, Jesus has finished preaching this Sermon on the Plain, and he enters the city of Capernaum. And verse 2 tells us that there is a centurion in that town. I say, what is a centurion? Well, think of the word century. A century is a hundred years. A centipede is an insect with a hundred legs. Or a cent, right? It takes a hundred cents to make a dollar. And so a centurion is a military general in the Roman army who would oversee a hundred soldiers, give or take. And this particular centurion, this particular general in the Roman army, he is stationed at Capernaum. He's probably tasked by Rome with law enforcement and peacekeeping and enforcing tax collection and all those fun things. But he's got a major problem on his hands. Major problem is that his servant is really sick. Matthew, in his account, tells us that he's got some kind of paralysis, and he's suffering terribly, Matthew says. And Luke adds the detail that he's at the point of death. Now, without getting too much into the details, the word that you see there, servant, uh, in the Greek is doulos, uh, probably better translated as slave, And slaves in the Roman Empire were typically viewed and treated as mere property. Which means that if a slave got sick, especially to the point of death, most masters would just discard them and replace them with another slave, a healthy slave who could do the work. This centurion clearly viewed his slave very differently. The slave was, look at the end of verse 2, highly valued by him. Not just in an economic sense, but in the sense that he had compassion and care and love for this slave. It's actually the same word, highly valued, that the Apostle Paul uses in the letter of Philippians in describing how the Philippians should receive Epaphroditus. He says, honor such men. And so this centurion, he honored his slave and held him in high esteem and regard, just like the Philippians did Epaphroditus. And so when this slave gets sick, when he's suffering terribly and he is at death's door, it's not, whatever, just get me another slave. No, it's, I will do whatever it takes to get my dear friend better. And so in that sense, right, different story, but it's not all that different from how the nobleman in John chapter 4 views his own son. 
And so the centurion hears that Jesus is in town. His servant is very sick. And so he sends the elders of the Jews to Jesus on his behalf. And he probably does that because he thinks that he's got a better chance of having his request answered if he sends them instead of going himself. It's kind of like when I'm with my family and they're giving out free samples. Let's say it's, I don't know, like ice cream. And I got my free sample, but I want another one. If I myself go, it's like, sir, only one per customer, please. But if I send my son Paxton on my behalf, it's like, oh, sweetheart, how many do you want? You want two? You want three? Works every single time. Here's the question. It's obvious why my five-year-old son would have a better chance of getting a free sample of ice cream than I would. But why would the centurion think that he would have a better chance of having his request heard if he sent the elders of the Jews instead of going himself? The answer is probably because he's a Gentile. And that's a fact that's going to become very prominent later in the story. Now, when we say Gentile, we mean a non-Jewish person, right? This centurion, uh, predictably for someone in his position in the Roman army, he was not Jewish. He was a Gentile. Now to us, living in our culture, that might not really seem like that big of a deal. But in that cultural context, the fact that Jesus, as a Jew, would have anything to do with this Gentile man, let alone minister to him by healing his servant, To the first century Jewish mind, that would have been shocking. Uh, There were centuries of bad blood and animosity between Jews and Gentiles. And the Jewish people basically viewed Gentiles as being unclean, would typically have nothing to do with them. If you've read through the book of Acts or you've read through some of the epistles, then you know just how bad that tension was. In Ephesians, Paul calls it a dividing wall of hostility between the Jews and the Gentiles. I think maybe this line from Peter, a Jew, sums it up best in Acts 10, 28. Uh, Peter says, you yourselves know, right, in our culture, you know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or visit anyone of another nation. And we're going to see in a bit how this particular centurion, right, even as a Gentile, he kind of has a unique place among the Jewish people. Like he is well-respected and, and liked by them. But even then, for the Messiah to minister to a Gentile, right, that would have been unthinkable. And so this centurion, perhaps he's bought into that mindset, he's subscribed to that mindset, he thinks that he has a better chance of having his request answered if instead of going himself as a Gentile, he sends the Jewish elders on his behalf. Let's think about this a little bit more. Jesus, in this story, is going to minister to a Gentile. That's notable that Jesus responds favorably to a Gentile here by healing his servant, right? As a matter of fact, this is the first Gentile to play any kind of prominent role in this gospel. But at the same time, like if you've been with us since the beginning of our study of Luke really shouldn't catch you too off guard. By the way, side point, uh, this is why I think it is profitable for churches to just preach through a book of the Bible, 
because you can kind of see how each section builds on what has come before. Related side point, right? If you're someone who comes to church like one out of every three weeks or something like that, and it's not because of a legitimate providential hindrance, uh, well, not only is what you're doing sinful because you are regularly forsaking the assembling of the saints, but also when you do come, you're just not going to get as much out of the sermon as you could be getting because you're missing a lot of the context, right, that we're building on from week to week. But back to my point. Uh, Those of you who have been tracking with Luke from the beginning, the fact that Jesus is ministering to a Gentile, that's really not that big of a surprise to us because you'll remember all the way back in Luke chapter 2, Jesus is 40 days old, his parents bring him to the temple, and there we meet a man named Simeon. And you'll remember what Simeon said when he held the baby Jesus in his arms. Luke chapter 2 Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples. Here it is, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. And so we've known since Luke chapter 2 that Jesus has come to be a light for revelation to the Gentiles. And so we really ought not to be surprised that here in chapter 7, He's doing exactly that with this Gentile centurion. And then you'll remember Luke chapter 4, when Jesus declares to the synagogue at Nazareth that he is the spirit-anointed Messiah from Isaiah. You remember what two Old Testament examples he gives of what the ministry of the Messiah would look like? Look, of all the stories in the Old Testament he could have picked, what were the two that he did pick? Number one, Elijah being sent to the widow of Zarephath, not a Jew, but a Gentile. And number two, Elisha being sent to cleanse Naaman the Syrian, also not a Jew, but a Gentile. And so Luke's already made it very clear in his gospel, both in Simeon's proclamation and Jesus' own words, that Gentiles were always a part of God's plan for the Messiah. And we see that unfolding here in our story. But this centurion, he perhaps is not aware of that, and so he sends the Jewish elders in his stead. Like we said earlier, the Jewish people would have had nothing good to say about your average Gentile back then, right, because of the, the animosity and the hostility between those two groups. Add to that, This guy's a centurion, right? So he works for the occupying Roman forces. And so he should have been like doubly hated by the Jewish elders. But shockingly, they vouch for him. He is worthy to have you do this for him. We're supposed to read that and be confused. What's going on here? Well, the elders actually fill us in. Why they're vouching for this centurion? For he loves our nation, and he is the one who built us our synagogue. He's not a Jew, but he loves our nation. He loves the Jewish people, and he's put his money where his mouth is by building us our synagogue. Now, we don't know if this is the same synagogue in Capernaum in which Jesus healed the demon-possessed man in Luke chapter 4. Like, was there only one synagogue in the town? We don't know. Interesting to think about. But this isn't a random act of kindness, right? This building the synagogue. I think it's reasonable. I think it's safe for us to assume that this centurion 
was what would have been referred to as a God-fearer. A God-fearer was a, a Gentile who acknowledged the one true God and participated in some degree in the synagogue services, all that, but wasn't circumcised, right? So he was not a full proselyte into Judaism. This man shows his devotion to God. He shows his love for the Jewish people by building them this synagogue. And so the Jewish elders vouch for him. What I think is really interesting is not just that the elders vouch for him. It's the mindset of the Jewish elders. Right? Their reasoning as to why Jesus should help them. Look again at verses 4 and 5. When they came to Jesus, they pleaded with him earnestly. And now listen to what they say. He is worthy to have you do this for him, for he loves our nation, and he is the one who built us our synagogue. Because he loves our nation, and because he built us our synagogue, therefore, right, this is the logic, therefore, he is worthy to have you do this for him. And you can clearly see the the meritocratic, like, works-based mindset that they had. Because of these works, He deserves blessing. He is worthy of blessing. He has earned your favor. It's not all that different from the Pharisee in Luke chapter 18. I fast twice a week and I give tithes of all that I get. Therefore, I am worthy of your favor, God. Now you'll notice that Luke doesn't record any correction from Jesus in response to that kind of workspace mindset. It just says that he went with them to the centurion's house. And perhaps the reason that Jesus doesn't say anything or that Luke doesn't record anything is because the centurion himself, through both his words and his deeds, the centurion himself in the rest of the story provides the corrective for that kind of wrong mindset. Look at verses 6 and 7. Jesus went with them. And so he's answering this request from the elders. He goes with them. When he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends, saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. Therefore, I did not presume to come to you, but say the word and let my servant be healed. Hopefully you've picked up on that contrast, right? Verse 4 the Jewish elders describing this centurion, he is worthy. Verse 6, the centurion speaking of himself, I am not worthy. Then in verse 7, the ESV uh, unfortunately kind of obscures this in their translation, but most other English versions will have, I did not even consider myself worthy to come to you. It's the same word for worthy as in verse 4. And so you've got these Jewish elders betraying their works righteousness mentality, vouching for this man by saying he is worthy. And in contrast, you've got the centurion himself saying, I am not worthy. I am not worthy to come to you. This guy understands that nothing that he's done even so great and and generous and magnanimous as building a synagogue, that nothing that he's done could make him worthy of God's grace 
and favor. Sure, this man might have looked at other people and maybe seen himself as more righteous or more generous, worthier in that sense. But when he rightly sees himself in light of the perfect holiness of the one with whom he's dealing, Jesus the Messiah, he rightly sees that he is not worthy. And isn't that what Jesus was talking about in the Sermon on the Plain? Remember the Beatitudes, that his true disciples would be marked by humility. Blessed are you who are what? Spiritually poor and spiritually hungry. In a word, you who are humble, blessed are you. You who recognize your spiritual poverty before a holy God. It's the same mindset we've already seen in this gospel from another true disciple, Simon Peter. Remember when Jesus caught all that fish? Peter says, depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. When Peter realized who it was who was standing before him, like instantly any ideas of self-worth, worthiness, went straight out the window. He could only see his unworthiness as a sinful man before a holy God. Same thing with this centurion. I am not worthy. Now, true disciples will vary in their degree of humility, of course. But at the same time, all true disciples are humble. Because God opposes the proud, but gives grace to whom? The humble. Or to put it another way, if you consider yourself worthy of salvation, well, of course God should let me into heaven. Look at all that I've done for God. How worthy I am. Well, if you think that way, in essence, you are rejecting Jesus as your Savior by denying your need for him because you think you're good enough on your own. It's only the one who in true humility, sees himself rightly as an unworthy recipient of God's saving grace, as a sinner in dire need of a savior. It's only that kind of person who will turn to Christ for salvation. It's only the one who forsakes the worthiness and the value of his works, all the good that he's done, who will then trust in Jesus' work, in Jesus' goodness alone. So true humility, like what the centurion displays here, that's something that is seen in all true disciples. So if you're this morning and you're not a Christian, I think this is your biggest takeaway from this passage. Until you can with full conviction of your heart, in the desperation of your soul, agree with this centurion, I am not worthy. I am not worthy of God. I cannot earn God's favor. All my righteous deeds have no worth in making me righteous enough for God. Unless you have that mindset, you will never see your true need. You will never come to Christ. And so you need to see that all the, the good that you've ever done, 
reading your Bible and, and praying and being a nice person and going to church, building a synagogue for the people of Capernaum, right? that none of those things can atone for a single sin that you've committed. Only Jesus. Only his death on the cross, his resurrection for sinners like me and you, only he can take away your sin and make you fit for heaven. It's only by placing your full trust in him and his work that you can be saved. And that starts with recognizing, like this centurion, I am not worthy. And brothers and sisters, believers here today, those of us who have humbled ourselves before God and thus received his salvation, I think there's application here for us as well as we consider the true humility of the centurion. Because here's the thing. Even those of us who would 100% agree with the doctrine of salvation by grace alone, that, that in, we in no way contribute to our salvation through our works, well, we too can have this mindset kind of creep in of our works somehow making us worthy. Where we think that because of the works that we've done as believers, right, which are supposed to be the fruit of our salvation, we talked about that last week, because of these things that we've done, well, now somehow God owes us. He is indebted to us. Now that can manifest itself in thinking, well, God, I have served you faithfully in X and Y. Therefore, I deserve Z. Why don't I have Z? Where Z is a spouse, a child, a job, good health, some favorable circumstance, you fill in the blank. God, I am worthy of your blessing because of all that I've done for you. Now, we would never be so crude to put it that way, but I think you can see how that kind of thinking can easily come into our mindsets. Or it can manifest itself in being overly focused on the things that we've done for the kingdom of God. This is the person who never fails to boast about the synagogues that they've built, which is really quite the opposite of this centurion. He lets another man's lips praise him, but he never thinks to glory in his own accomplishments before the Lord. He will only mention his unworthiness. But back to our narrative. Did you notice in verse 6 how the centurion refers to Jesus? Lord, as in Lord, do not trouble yourself. Now that's significant for several reasons. Uh, for one, right, this dude is a centurion, and so he is an officer in Rome's army, and so he has sworn under allegiance to call Caesar Lord, under oath to call Caesar Lord. His allegiance should be to Caesar, right? Kaiser Curios. Caesar is Lord. Caesar, not exactly known for sharing his glory with another. Probably not too happy about that. But here it's not Caesar whom he calls Lord. It's Jesus. Lord, do not trouble yourself. And when he calls Jesus Lord, it's not just lip service. Remember last week's sermon, Jesus sternly rebukes in the Sermon on the Plain the foolish builders among his followers who call him Lord, Lord, 
but they don't do what he says. They profess his authority, but they don't actually recognize his authority. Those false disciples show through their disobedience that they don't have a right understanding of authority. But now here you've got this centurion. As a true disciple, he shows a right understanding of authority. Look at what he says in verses 7 and 8. Therefore I did not presume to come to you, but say the word and let my servant be healed, for I too am a man set under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes, and to one another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. That's a remarkable statement. You realize what he's saying there. This is the, an argument from the greater to the lesser, or rather the lesser to the greater, because he is a centurion in Rome's army. He's got authority over some soldiers. And he's a master in his household, and so he's got authority over some slaves. When he gives orders to his soldiers and to his slaves, those orders are followed. He simply says the word, and it's carried out. But he acknowledges that like, when it comes to authority, small potatoes pota- compared to Jesus. Right? Jesus... His word has authority over all things. Why? Because he's the one who spoke the world into existence by his word. Let there be, and there was. Jesus, Hebrews chapter 1, who upholds the universe by what? The word of his power. And so if this centurion's word, this centurion's word has authority and power in his small little world, in his limited realm, then how much more, lesser to the greater, how much more authority and power does Jesus' word carry as God incarnate? And so Jesus, simply say the word, and my servant's going to be healed. You don't have to come any further. I don't deserve to have you in my presence. I truly believe that you are who you say you are. That you have authority over all things and Therefore, you can heal my servant with your word. So stay where you are. You don't have to come any further. Your word is not going to return to you void. Your word is going to accomplish that which you please. That's a right understanding of Jesus' authority. That is, Sermon on the Plain, that is calling Jesus Lord, Lord, and doing what he says by fully trusting in him. And so the centurion shows himself to be the wise man who built his house upon the rock, upon the foundation of Christ. Through his faith, through his trust in the power and authority of Jesus' word. Which brings us to the conclusion of the story. It's a shocking statement by Jesus here. He sees all that's unfolding before him. And look at what happens in verses 9 and 10. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him. And turning to the crowd that followed him, said, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. When those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the servant well. A few things to notice here about this conclusion. First, remember how the Jewish elders, how they initially approached Jesus, how they proclaimed the centurion's worthiness, Here's all that he's done. But you'll notice Jesus doesn't mention any of that. 
He never mentions anything that might make the centurion worthy of this healing. He only commends him for his faith. Second, and this I think is really interesting, notice how the healing itself, which is basically what we've been hoping for since verse 2, the healing itself is like an afterthought here. Like verse 10 is clearly secondary in terms of the impact that it's supposed to leave with Luke's readers to verse 9. I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. Like, that's the punchline. Considering the tensions between Jews and Gentiles that existed back then that we've already talked about, that would have been a shocking statement. But it's as clear as day. Being a true disciple of Jesus, it's not about nationality, it's not about ethnic origin or any of that. It's just about what you do with Jesus' word. This centurion, through his humility, through his true understanding of Jesus' authority, through this submission to and and trust in Jesus' word, he demonstrates a faith that even Jesus says is unparalleled among God's people. And did you catch what it says in verse 9 about this man's faith? It is a faith so unique that it causes Jesus to marvel. In both accounts of this story, so Luke chapter 7, Matthew chapter 8, both accounts, right? Each gospel writer includes and leaves out different details, right? They're both telling the same story. Both are true. Both are God's word, but they put in and leave out certain details. But in both accounts, both accounts were told that Jesus marveled at this man's faith. The only other time in the four Gospels that we're told that Jesus marveled was in a negative sense. It's when he goes back to Nazareth and he's dealing with the people of his own hometown and they see all the works that that are done by his hands and they hear all the wise teachings that are coming out of his mouth, but they take offense at him, right? Because they think they know who he is. We know him. We know his family. He's nothing special. And so in Mark 6, 6, it says that he marveled because of their unbelief. Same word, but that's the only other time that we're told that Jesus marveled, and that's in a negative sense. And so in the Gospels, there's a lot of people marveling at Jesus, right, in a positive sense. But this centurion's faith, this story, is the only time that Jesus himself marvels at someone else in a positive sense. But here's the million-dollar question, and as we kind of take a step back from the story and think about it as a whole, as we think about the faith that this centurion had that caused Jesus himself to marvel, where did this man get this faith? Where does he get his right understanding of authority? Because you can read verses 7 and 8 and say, well, yeah, he's got the advantage of being in a position of authority himself and being a man of authority, uh, under authority himself. And so clearly he's got some real-life examples of authority to work with. We need to realize, right, this isn't just a straight logical deduction that he makes. Like, it is a huge leap to get from, like, in the army, people obey my authority, to Jesus, you're the son of God, and you can, you can save my servant from death just by speaking, right? That's a huge jump. That is not just, like, a logical deduction that anybody could make. 
So where does he get his insight into Christ's authority? And where does this man get his true humility? Like one that looks past all of his accomplishments, as great as they might have been, building a synagogue. Where does he get his true humility that he would rightly realize his unworthiness before a holy God? How is it that while everyone else around him, even Israelites, how they have their minds blinded from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. And yet here's this centurion, this Gentile, who seems to have eyes to understand everything so clearly. The answer, of course, and it's a theme that we see not only throughout this gospel, but also throughout the New Testament, is that God graciously bestows it upon him. Because faith itself, the Bible tells us, is a gift from God. It has been granted to you to believe. And so God opens up this man's eyes to allow him to rightly see authority, rightly see lordship, rightly see who Jesus is, and then who he is in light of that. All of that, authority and humility and submission, all of that is a gracious gift from a gracious God. And so we could say that flesh and blood has not revealed this to him. But his father who is in heaven, well, he's given him this insight. Matthew chapter 11. At that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. And so God, in accordance with his gracious will, Well, he hid these truths from many Jews and yet revealed it to this little Gentile child, this centurion, that he might display a faith that Jesus found nowhere else in Israel. Friends, that is a powerful illustration of the sovereignty of God. It is a powerful illustration of Romans chapter 9. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So then, Romans 9, 16, it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills and he hardens whomever he wills. How is it that this Gentile centurion is able to have this insight about who Jesus is, his authority, how he can trust his word, his humility that expresses itself in how he proclaims his unworthiness before Christ? Where does he get all this stuff? Well, the answer is that God has mercy on whomever he wills. And he has mercy abundantly on this centurion that allows him to express a faith that causes Jesus to marvel. You think about it that way, when you realize that Jesus isn't so much marveling at this man, because it's not like this man produced that faith. No, Jesus is marveling here at God's gift to this man. Jesus is marveling at God's grace to this man, which revealed those awesome truths of humility and authority and granted him that faith to trust Jesus in light of those truths. 
So friends, let me close by saying this. If God has saved you, if God has, like with this centurion, if God has opened your eyes to behold his glory, to in true humility rightly see yourself as unworthy in the presence of a holy God, to have a right understanding of the authority of his word, well, friends, don't marvel at your own insight or your own wisdom or your own faith. Don't glory in your own greatness. Don't marvel at the grace of the one who granted you that insight and that wisdom and that faith and glory in his greatness. Father, we thank you for you and your sovereignty have given us much mercy, we who have eyes to see the truths of your word. Father, we pray that that would not lead to a prideful heart, one that glories in ourselves or looks down upon others, but that we would marvel at the fact that you, a holy and yet gracious God, have shown that grace, have extended that grace even to sinners like us. Father, we pray for those in this room who do not yet have eyes to see. We know that it is you who removes that blindness through regeneration. And so we pray that you would do that today, that they might see your glory and rejoice in Jesus. We ask this in his name. Amen.